This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. On this week's episode, I interviewed Ben Metric. Ben is an author. He wrote the new book, uh, The Anti-Social Network, which is about the GameStop short squeeze that happened to Wall Street over the winter. Um, follows a couple of the characters in that and kind of outlays the story for you in a really good cinematic way. It's a, it's a really fun read. Um, so that book just released, but uh, you might also know Ben from some of his other works. Um, you know, way back, uh, one of his first big breakthrough was the the book "Bringing Down the House," which was turned into the movie Twenty One, which was about the MIT students that went out to play blackjack in Las Vegas and and were uh, bringing down the house by, you know, counting cards and uh, and uh, basically uh, raking the the casinos over the coals and um so he that was his breakthrough and then um he wrote a bunch of other books but uh of note uh accidental billionaires which turned into the social network movie um and then he also uh wrote the book bitcoin billionaires which is about the winklevoss twins um becoming bitcoin billionaires and uh you know it's kind of the early days recaps the early days of bitcoin and everything so i thought it'd be great to get him on and uh talk to him about you know because the short squeeze with gamestop kind of had a lot to do with you know it's very similar you know what's going on with uh bitcoin or how bitcoin's taking power back from the elites and so forth and uh and the GameStop short squeeze was really uh, a bunch of the, uh, you know, regular common folk taking back power from the, the people on Wall Street that weren't used to having the game played against them. So it was a great conversation with Ben. I really enjoyed it. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at Ben Meserick. Um, and that's uh, CH on the end, um, not uh, CK. So, and uh, for the sponsor for today's show, it is CoinBeast Connect. Do you have questions about Bitcoin? Personalize your learning and book a one on one video call with a Bitcoin pro on CoinBeast Connect. Learn about mining, security, the Lightning Network, DeFi, taxes, and many other topics. It's really easy. Choose your topic and pro. Select a date when you're available and bring your questions to the meeting room. Book your first call today by going to coinbeast.com and clicking on the connect tab. Be prepared for the financial revolution and get the knowledge you need. And thanks again to Ben for coming on. I really enjoyed it. And I'll put in the show notes his uh, link to the book and everything like that because uh, I, I read it over the weekend. And it's, it's a really enjoyable book, a really a great read. Thanks for him. Uh, you know, really enjoyed having that conversation with him. Um, my if you want to connect with the show, the Twitter handle for the show is at Bitcoin Simply. And my personal one is at Tusik Corey. And you can email the show Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Um, and so I hope you didn't take offense to my uh, tweet that uh, connected us when I said, I said, I know how to say this man's name, but I, in my head, it's jumbled because. And I'll explain just a disclaimer as to why, because um, it's not a difficult name to uh, to pronounce. But when I was on a podcast early on, I was I went to say your name and it I like jumbled it for some reason in my and then it stuck in my mind like it was like a thing I couldn't say anymore. It was, <laughs> no, it's fine. No worries at all. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I, it's been pronounced Mesrit or Mesric, and either way works for me. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I can take my last name doesn't have an R in it, but um, 
but people have put have called it Tucker before, right. and it's like I'm like, there's not even an R, like there's no <laughs> O R no R near it. So, um, <laughs> I appreciate that, but I figured I was like, oh, maybe he'll re- maybe he'll see this and get a chuckle out of it. That's fine. Yeah. So, um, so anyways, uh, thanks for coming on, and we'll get into your book in a minute, which I do have right here. I should terrible podcasting, but. I've got the copy right here. Um, great artwork. If you're not watching the YouTube link, the, the artwork, if you haven't seen it, uh, I love a good bu- uh, book artwork. So that was great. Um, but uh, before we get into that book, you know, this being a Bitcoin podcast uh, and you wrote Bitcoin Billionaires, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit um, and hear how you first got into Bitcoin and, and what led you to having laser eyes now. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I never thought I would write about Bitcoin. Um, I didn't know much about it. You know, people had pitched me on it for years saying I should be writing about it, but just wasn't something that was really on my radar. Um, But in the process of writing The Social Network, um, the book that became The Social Network was Accidental Billionaires. I had gotten to know the Winklevoss twins. And, you know, they were the bad guys in that story. Um, In some respects, they were the guys chasing the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg around Harvard. Um, and saying that he stole their idea. And and at the time, I never really thought I would write about them again. And it was years later, and I saw them in the New York Times, and the headline was, the Winklevoss twins are the first Bitcoin billionaires. And I was fascinated by that. So I called them up and started hanging out with them again. And they basically told me about Bitcoin. And and, uh, I was blown away by this story, mainly because it was the Winklevoss twins, and they were back (laughs) again, you know, riding into town with this new empire built on crypto. So um, I went and learned, I did a deep deep dive into everything Bitcoin and wrote Bitcoin Billionaires. Um, And so that's what got me interested in crypto and and, and all of the new technologies in that world. Um, And, you know, that book came out, I guess, uh, 2019. So pre-pandemic, that was my my big book. Um, And uh, and so, yeah, that's 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 where that all came from. So that's where you learned it from. And and my theory with, you know, going taking one of the positive signs for Bitcoin for me, whenever I saw the Winklevoss is going forward, is I saw they missed out big once with Facebook and they weren't going to do that again. Well, I mean, you know, you could look at it that way. You could look at it. They've been struck by lightning twice because they were behind two revolutions. If you look at it from their point of view, um, it's really amazing what they've done and, and how they've been a part of, of two massive changes in, 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 in the way we, we, we look at the world. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think following the Winklevoss twins is, is probably a good idea. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing I like about that book is that it, you know, kind of takes some of the rough edge off of them for the that's left over from uh, from the social network. If you saw the movie, you know, or if you read the, the book, The Accidental Billionaires, you know, I'm sure you didn't try to portray them as villains. But um, well, I mean, you know, they 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 came off, uh, not, you know, as. They're, they're larger than life. They're the two giant, you know, Olympic rower jocks who, um, you know, and Zuckerberg was the uber geek. Um, so it, there was an opposition yeah. that you couldn't avoid. And, and having grown up on 80s movies, they were the archetypal 80s bad guy. Um, so I think that they filled that role really well. And then Aaron Sorkin took it to a whole nother level with the movie um, where, where they're, you know, they're portrayed as caricatures almost um, to, to really incredible effect. Um, and Army Hammer played them perfectly. And, and so the movie definitely um, put them on the map in a way that they probably wouldn't have chosen <laughs> to be <laughs> portrayed. 
But at the, on the other hand, it definitely told their story in a way that had never been told before. So there were pros and cons, I think, to it. Um, but definitely there's a much more three-dimensional picture of them than Bitcoin billionaires. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm fascinated with is because I'm, you know, it's like ideologically I land on the probably libertarian end, but like I have that like constant tug and pull between, um, you know, we need like we don't want regulation, but like you also can't just have like no rules, Um, you know, and so it's like. I'm always kind of swaying between the two where at one point I'm like, we don't need any roles. And then I get to the other side and I'm like, Oh no, like I think we need more roles than we have. And, and it's a hard, um, a hard balance. So I, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are with, because it appears that that's something that the Winklevoss twins um, really have, have to kind of tread. Yeah. I mean, I think the twins believe in, in some level of regulation that they want it to be part of the mainstream and for crypto to be part of the mainstream needs to be regulated. People's money has to be safe and they have to feel secure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, listen, I, I, none of us would have done well in the Wild West. <laughs> I mean, nobody, <laughs> you know, we don't really want no rules um, because it's just not a good way to live. And so, especially in the financial world, if there's no rules, you're going to have people um, doing horrible things to each other. Um, so obviously there needs to be some level of regulation and, um, and, uh, and so with Bitcoin and crypto, the question is, where do you draw those lines? There's not a specific country in charge of it. So every country has to deal with it differently. Um, you know, and so you want it to be the people have sort of the power and you want people to be able to exchange money without a middleman in between. Um, you just want to keep fraud out of it. You want to keep crime out of it. Um, and I think that's where you have to draw these lines. So it gets it to the know your customer kind of thing. And 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 um, and stuff like that, which uh, which the goal is to make it a safe environment for people to to exchange um, crypto. Um, you don't want people faking it and, and making coins and pumping and dumping them, and you don't want total freedom there. I don't think um, because I think it leads to horrible outcomes, and it also means it'll never become part of the mainstream. Um, you want banks to be involved, I think, um, to some degree. You want everyone to feel comfortable exchanging Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I think there needs to be some level of, of regulation. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think Bitcoin is going to ultimately have, like, it'll, it, it's going to succeed no matter what any of us do. It seems like, you know, it just keeps chugging along, but you know, it's not going to be 100% anyone's ideology, like where it's like, oh, this is, it is my, you know, libertarian utopia, or it's my, you know, regulation utopia. It's just kind of, you know, the game theory playing out now, like banks kind of have to do it, you know, and what's going on in El Salvador with, you know, now McDonald's and Starbucks are accepting lightning payments, you know? Right, right, right. So I mean, it's, 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 it's spectacular. You think about how far it's come since I wrote Bitcoin Billionaires. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a short amount of time, but, you know, Bitcoin was trading at $3,000 a coin and no one ever thought it would get back to 20. Everybody was bemoaning that it had gone to 20 and gone back down. Now we wouldn't even want it to go near 20. So, I mean, it's a, it's a totally different environment. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it's here to stay. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that it's not going to continue forward. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. But. Yeah. And so I gotta, I gotta ask because, um, and don't worry, this is a safe space, uh, but are you Bitcoin only or do you diversify I, across I a few? Crypto right now? I don't own anything. Um, okay. Never, so just so you know, I'm, I believe in, I, I, I believe in crypto. I love uh, uh, 
what it's done and I like the, the community, um, but I don't have personal stake in any of it. I, I definitely see Bitcoin as part of our future and I think it's sort of the big one. Um, I love NFTs. I think the whole concept of NFTs is incredible and that makes me really interested in Ethereum. Um, and uh, and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not you know, that knowledgeable about every single kind of coin. Mm. Um, I was happy to see people make money on Dogecoin as ridiculous as it is. Um, mm -hmm. It's ridiculous, but at the same time, who cares? Um, and I, I really believe in the power of community and, and that's where we get into this new book. But I think value is, is what we agree it is. <laughs> so I don't have a problem with sort of any, any uh, token or any kind of coin um, reaching critical mass because people decide they like it. Um, I think that's where value comes from. So, um, so I'm, I'm not a maximalist in any sense. Yeah. You know, that, but I definitely, you know, am, am a fan of, of Bitcoin and, and people who have lots of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and you know, just before we touch on the, get to the book, um, the, I'm curious your thoughts on the NFTs because I've said, um, I think that NFTs represent an opportunity for artists to, yes. um, but I think it'll ultimately be something that lives on top of the Bitcoin network as a like a, another layer. Because to me, I don't know, I'm just curious to see your initial reaction whenever you heard of them. When I heard of them, I thought, you know what, this is a pretty good idea. If you're a, a photographer, let's say, and, and you snap a photo and, you know, normally you have to put it up on Getty Images and, you know, earn your royalties that way. If it gets used anywhere on the Internet, all of those, you know, all that, you know, money and revenue and everything that would get be paid to use it would come back to you or or say if you own lebron's highlight of him dunking then like if espn wants to use that you well, they have to pay you yes and no i mean i don't think nfts are really working that way at least certainly not the way top shot is doing it and yeah yeah you don't own that <laughs> you just no. get you get a little copy of it um so i do think that the value of nfts for artists is the ability to create a community or to access a community that revolves around what it is that you do so as an author, I'm definitely intrigued by the idea of NFTs, and I think I'm going to do something in that space, um, not just necessarily write about it, but actually be involved, because I think it's a way of, of reaching people who like what you do um, and offering them uh, access and a unique um, way of being involved. And, and, you know, so I think it's a great way for artists to do it. I think that, that you're going to see it more and more in that world. Um, I, I think NFTs are, are awesome. I think what we all crave is something that's real and unique. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the real world or the digital world. And mm -hmm. NFT allows you to sort of mint something that is unique, um, that is authentic, um, but it's also transferable. Um, that's cool, you know? And, yeah. I, and so as someone who's studied art a little bit and, and has been involved in stories about all sorts of sort of both virtual and real value and, and, and money. Um, I think NFTs are cool. And I think it's, it's going to be, we're just at the beginning of where, where they can go. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to try and do something in NFTs. I think uh, at some point as an author, I think there's a lot that can be done um, to reach your audience. Um, so, Oh so. yeah. Yeah. There's, there's different things, you know, I mean, there's things on the Bitcoin network where people can stream sats while they're listening to your podcasts or, you know, right. your audio book or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, people that are like hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, which I mean, I guess if you defined it, that's probably what I would be. But they're probably sitting here going, what is he talking about? NFTs are garbage, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's you kick the hornet's ass. But I, I think that 
ultimately everything will live on top. Personally, my view is anything that's valuable um, in this space will ultimately live on top of Bitcoin and it'll provide, you know, um, some serious value, you know, like uh, Roger Ver was, you know, all about quick payments with Bitcoin cash. And now we have the lightning network, you know? So it's like, I think that's kind of the way it'll go. And me being, I don't even know if I told you my background, but I'm in the movie business. So, you know, you being in, you know, the arts and entertainment and books and everything, you get it like royalties, wanting to make sure the payments, you know, your people are earning, there's piracy, all those problems, there's very real problems. And I think that's could be solved with that. So, um, so I'm with you there and, and I'd be excited to see, and then maybe we can bump it up onto the, you know, get you streamed sats or something through, uh, through like one of the Sphinx chat or something like that for people listening to your books. Um, so with the, the anti-social network, um, one of the things I love about Hollywood and, um, and, uh, you know, the literary, everything is how quickly things happen nowadays. Yeah. And, um, I'm pretty sure it was a net. Was it announced that you were doing this book before the, the, <laughs> the all time high it even reached? I, basically, I think I was in the story, you know, which is really <laughs> crazy. I usually am writing a book after it takes place. Um, usually a fair number of years after it takes place. I mean, this was nuts. So I was watching it, you know, January, it was the week of January 28th, 26th. Uh, it's like four days that week in January. And I was watching it happen live. You know, I was like, oh my God, this, this is going crazy. I've always been interested in penny stocks and small stocks. I've, I've, I'm a gambler. I was familiar with Robin Hood. So I was kind of in that milieu, but I wasn't invested in GameStop. I was just watching it. And I started getting tweets and emails that, you know, you should be writing about this. This is just up your alley. And so I, I literally wrote a proposal, a book proposal, movie treatment that week while it was happening. And I'd sold the movie in a big way to MGM and sold the book um, and then started writing it. And, and so it had peaked and then it was like a week later, I was deep into the writing of the book. Um, so it was, it was nuts. Um, you know, I was able to sort of watch the congressional hearing and put it in the book almost at the same time. Um, it was just, I've never written a book that way before. Um, and it was fun. It was exciting. And I think it's one of my best books. If you read it, you'll see that I, I was really in, in this love with the subject. I think it's just so dramatic. There's so many layers to it. Um, the GameStop short squeeze was not, in my opinion, just this one aberration. I think it's the beginning of a revolution in meme stocks, a revolution in the market with Wall Street now um, being uh, a victim's not the word, but, but Wall Street has to deal with the power of social media the power of these communities. It's very similar to what's gone on in crypto. Um, but, you know, no longer is, you know, a stock's price uh, tethered to its fundamentals. A stock price is now determined by the sentiment and the emotion of the people who are interested in that stock. And, and, and Reddit became sort of this place where millions of people could gather together and make a company go to become one of the most valuable companies in the country or on earth. Uh, <laughs> they like the stock um, because they wanted to see Wall Street fail. It was emotion. It was all of this, all these sorts of things go into it. And then when you read the book, you see there's a lot of layers to it. But um, I was fascinated. I really was blown away by the story. Yeah. And, and I won't, um, you know, give too much away from the book, but, uh, you know, me being a filmmaker and, and uh, obviously loving stories, um, so we're in that, like, I just really appreciated 
I, I love your write, writing style, but being able to get that multiple layers it almost gave me that feeling of um, the the ants in Pixar. Uh, Pixar is a bug's life. Yeah. Um, realizing that they have the power to overthrow the the grasshoppers, you know, like they realized like we have all the numbers, you know, and we can do this. Um, and I, I think that that's a really cool theme, you know, talk a little bit about the, you know, and I could see this symbolically too. You, you pointed out how, it no, it no longer became GameStop the store. It became GME. Right. Absolutely. And they are two very different things. So, you know, look at GameStop is, is kind of a ridiculous company. Let's be honest. <laughs> Looking at it pre this whole thing, you're like, you know, we love GameStop. I'm nostalgic. I love it. My kids love it. I spent hours and hours in the stores. I'm, I'm a gamer. I, I understand it, but I also understand that in the era of Amazon and everything being digital, a brick and mortar store in a mall that sells consoles and yeah. Rick dolls and whatever else you like is not going to succeed. I mean, it's blockbuster, right? I mean, unless they can pivot to the digital world, which is what Keith Gill, um, you know, Roaring Kitty or DFB or whatever you want to call him, that was his thesis that if GameStop pivots correctly, it could become the Amazon of gaming. Um, and that's true, but they had made no indication that they were going to go in that direction. A revolving door of leadership, horrible earnings, it just wasn't a good looking company. So shorting it made perfect sense, right? Um, but people didn't want it to die. And so GME, the stock, had very little to do with GameStop, the company. GME, the stock, was almost like a token that everybody rallied behind because they could stick it to a Wall Street bank that was betting on GameStop failing. Um, and, and, uh, and they succeeded, I mean, really, for a short period of time. And still today, um, that stock price you know, is, is on its way to the moon comparatively to what it's actually worth. Um, and, so, and so that was the exciting sort of part of the story is when the, when the mob realizes its power. I mean, I think they start, you know, the whole diamond hands concept. That yeah. We stick together and we don't sell, this stock will go up. Um, and that's true for any stock. Um, and I think <laughs> that there's that sort of understanding suddenly that something like Wall Street Bets is immensely powerful. Um, and it doesn't have to be Wall Street Bets, it could be Twitter but the ability of social media to get millions of people on the same page um, is something Wall Street has to take into account now. Um, so yeah, it, that's, that's really what it is. It's GME has been separated from, from GameStop and the fundamentals and is, you know, there's no telling how high that could go. Yeah. And that's something that, um, you know, I think in, you know, we see a lot in the Bitcoin world where the, let's just say the elites who sat up top in their ivory tower, you know, they, they were able to control so much and um and you know, now the all, all all the you know the plebs all the all the serfs are starting to realize that they have power and they can you know work together um what did you see whenever you know in your you know following of the story and writing the book like how people were able to social through social networks pull together and really pull off something unheard of yeah, I mean, it started simply, you know, uh, Keith Gill is this guy in his basement in Brockton, Mass, working class suburb of Massachusetts, um, guy, you know, bummed around, hadn't had you know, a lot of luck in jobs, but was working um, for a mass in, uh, insurance company, basically. And he, uh, he was live streaming out of his basement about GameStop. He just loved the stock and the stock was trading <laughs> a few dollars a share. And everyone thought he was ridiculous. Some people were making fun of him. Everyone was like, this is a joke. You're never going to make any money. You're going to lose all your money. Um, uh, and then people started to notice that Wall Street had shorted this company 
to an absurd degree, you know, 140% of the shares were short, which means more shares were short than exist, um, which is, uh, puts it in a precarious position if the stock suddenly starts to go up. And then there were started to be some indications that good things were happening in the company. You know, Chewy, the guy who founded Chewy, Ryan Cohen, um, became interested in it and bought up 10% of it and was, was interested in becoming on the board and, and things like that. And so, uh, you know, people started to, to, to get behind what Keith Gill was doing. And then the meme started. You know, you had the picture of Chernobyl exploding. So Melvin Capital, which was the hedge fund that was shorting it, became Chernobyl. And if we hold together, it'll blow up like Chernobyl. And these things had a lot of power because they were funny and they were entertaining and everyone started to, to buy and buy and buy. And the stock goes to 20 to 40 to 70. And then that week happens where it just goes insane. And the stock makes it almost to 500. And that's where Elon Musk comes into the story. Elon Musk tweets, game stonked, um, sending the stock skyrocketing. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are the kind of the beats of the story. But yeah, I, I followed both the main story of those characters. And then I found a bunch of individual Redditors, people who were just random people involved in this to tell the story through. So one is a college kid who, um, you know, with a few thousand dollars ended up making a quarter million dollars riding GameStop. And another was a single mother of two um, who kind of been screwed over by life over and over again, um, who's just trying to pay for her kid's braces. And, and, and so these are the people you see the story through. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's just great. It's very dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and I, uh, with me being, you know, like emerging on the movie business, uh, and I'm lo- my streaming platform is like officially launching next week called cool. movies plus shameless plug. Um, yeah. but you know, in January I'm sitting there and I see that you're going to write the book. I'm like, Oh, I start like rubbing my hands together. And then MGM comes out like, Oh, well, yeah. I'll get the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, Mike DeLuca who did the social network, it runs MGM and he snapped it up and, and Aaron Ryder who produced Memento and um, Arrival is, uh, mm. pretty, yeah. And the screenplay is, is phenomenal and it's in, um, and it's going to directors now. So I think we'll have some big news soon. Um, it's all happening very quickly for the movie business. It's, uh, it's like the social network all over again. It's, it's going to be within a year of the book. I think we're going to see a movie, which is really, really cool. Um, so, yeah. That's wild. That's wild. Well, maybe uh, maybe we'll be able to snatch up the, the rights somehow. We'll, we'll work some kind of deal. Talk, I'm talking to my investors through my podcast. Okay. Um, trying to <laughs> trying to tell her, hey, hey, you know, we should uh, do that. Um, but uh, so you pretty much knew you wanted to write the book right away. Um, and you you get to talk to Keith at all. I mean, um, you know, it's tricky. So when you're writing a story that's that's happening as it's happening, it, it can be very tricky reaching out to people who, who are lawyered up <laughs> because yeah. still was in the center of a, a, a storm. Um, there's going to be lots of sort of I felt bad for him. Actions and actions and, and who knows where it's going to stand. So I found some really great sources. And I think when you read the book, you'll see that I had access to a lot of stuff um, and a lot of people, but, um, but yeah, it can be tricky. Keith, you know, isn't at liberty to sort of be open uh, <laughs> during <laughs> this, this period. Hopefully he will be involved with the movie, but you know, that's going to be up to him. Um, I'm fascinated by him. I'm, I'm a big fan, I think, of what he did. I, I see him as kind of the hero of the story in a way. Um, but I also have a lot of sympathy for, for both Vlad and, and, um, 
and Plotkin, which I think may get me in trouble with some listeners. But I think that Gabe Plotkin, for instance, is a super smart guy. You know, this is a guy who wins. He's won his whole life. This is a guy who runs a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, a $12 billion hedge fund, Melvin Capital, um, who really did nothing wrong. He shorted GameStop. I mean, everybody on Wall Street was shorting GameStop. It wasn't a, a, a unique play. I mean, this is a failing brick and mortar company. Why wouldn't you short it? Um, he shorted it during a pandemic. So the ethical considerations get a little dicier because should we really be betting on companies to fail during this horrible time? Um, but it's part of the economy. We do. That's how you know the economy functions as these checks and balances. There has to be a way to make money off of a failing economy as much as there is of making money off of a rising economy or else you know, we're all screwed when the economy goes down. Yeah. So, you got to so have a free and open market. Shorting does make sense, but... But it looked bad, and because he had to public fi uh, file publicly, it led to this kind of explosion. Um, but I don't see him as a bad guy. I think he's a guy who got caught up in a situation and became the enemy of the Reddit crowd. Um, and then you look at, at Robinhood. Um, what they were trying to do, or are trying to do, is, is a good thing. They're trying mm -hmm. to give the tools of Wall Street to everybody. You have this incredible portal on your phone to buy and sell stocks with no fees and no balances and easy to use, really fun to use. It gamifies everything, but but that's not a bad thing necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not make it a game? It's gambling anyways. Um, but turns out that when everything goes down and the volatility gets crazy, they get this collateral call and they had to shut down trading. They had to shut down buying. So they became the bad guys in the story because they screwed all of their users, but they didn't do it on purpose. They did it maybe because they were naive about what, what was actually happening. They weren't mm -hmm. prepared for the level of volatility and maybe they couldn't be, but, but I don't believe it was a conspiracy or that these people were evil necessarily. I think that, you know, Vlad was, was stuck in a, in a difficult situation and that he hadn't foreseen. Um, so, so I, I have sympathy for all of my characters, I think. Um, but um, we'll see what Hollywood does with it, you know, cause there's always yeah. Um, but uh, the, the optics but, weren't great. No, the optics were horrible and their communication was horrible. I mean, I think they basically sent out a blog post in an email. Oh, by the way, you can't buy GameStop today. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> in the middle of a short space, you know, and it screwed the, it screwed everybody. I mean, the short space collapsed and people didn't realize, I think that people using Robinhood were not really their customers. They were the product um, because Robinhood makes its money by, you know, selling your trades and payment for order flow to market makers like Citadel. So you are not paying Robinhood, but somebody is. Um, and because you're not the one paying Robinhood, it's easy for them to screw you. Um, so that it's beyond optics. There's definitely something dark there um, that maybe needs to be addressed at some point. Um, but, um, but yeah, so there's, again, there's levels to this story that I get into in the book and try and explain like, what is clearing? Why is clearing so important to this story? Um, and, and, um, and it's an incredibly boring topic that I try to make exciting. So hopefully that succeeded, but how you did, don't worry. <laughs> how, how the financial side of this all works, I think is fascinating. Um, and is the reason that Robinhood had to do what it did. I liked your analogy too. Of, you know, you wouldn't, you invite the plumber over, <laughs> you right. wouldn't you hang around and ask. Like you wouldn't invite the plumber over to a cocktail party to tell you about your plumbing. But you need, at some point, you might want to know what actually happens in those tubes, right? And yeah. that's simply clearing. Nobody sits down with a guy who's the head of clearing 
at a cocktail party and wants to hear his stories because honestly, it's not exciting. But the reality is it's incredibly important. Um, it's like how it all works. And, and so um, it's an intriguing thing. Like Robin Hood's clearing department is like shoved in, in Orlando, Florida. It's not even where Silicon Valley where the rest of the companies, they just keep it far away in the shadow of, of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> There's this clearing center. So I, I do think it's fascinating. Um, and so I try and get into that, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the comparison between um, you know, one of your earlier books, Bringing Down the House, um, yeah. that became uh, 21, you know, the, the movie with Lawrence Fishburne. And, um, and uh, you know, I know a lot of people love that uh, story in particular, but I see some similarities here between the gambling and you say you're a gambler yourself and I grew up uh playing cards my dad's gonna listen to this but you know and go oh god it sounds like we're terrible parents not terrible you know just like penny poker and on vacation or at, you know easter there was always a poker table you know with uncles and everybody playing um so you know having that background that was also my part-time job and through college that was my work study job was playing cards um for better or for worse but uh poker what's uh yeah Basically, that was when I when I went to college, Texas Hold'em had just taken hold. And, you know, so like beforehand, like my family would play like we would play dealer's choice, you know, wide variety of games. And and, you know, so I like night baseball, day baseball, all those fun, different games. And um, and then, you know, once I got to college, everybody just wanted to play Texas Hold'em. And I was like, there's other games, but, you know, good luck trying to get anybody to play anything at that point after the Chris Moneymaker and all that. Um. So yeah, so that I got uh, I got into that, and that was my work study job. Um, while I I played hockey and and played poker, <laughs> and my mom I'll never forget the look on her face when I showed her I had a thesaurus that I had like cut out some pages and put my cash in there, and she goes, well, I never asked you how we were moving back from freshman year. She goes, what? How did you uh, make money? You didn't do work study, and so I pulled the thesaurus out and opened it, and like the look on her face, I thought she was gonna wreck the car. She was like, Oh my god. <laughs> um but uh but yeah so the i'm curious you know what similarities do you see um because you say the gamification of the robin hood app you know and and it is kind of like gambling and and almost these people who figured out you know they they figured out how to count the cards by being able to look at the the stocks and say they this is overshorted with something we can you know run so do you see any similarities there yeah i definitely see a lot of similarities i mean i think you know bringing down the house um was all about a group of really smart guys or people figuring out how to game the system and, and beat some big authority, the casino or Vegas. And this is similar. It's regular people on their couches with their stimulus checks trying to figure out a way to take on Wall Street, which is very much like the house to some degree, um, some big casino type thing with players like Gabe Plotkin who kind of have all the information in front of them and have all the resources they have. Um, and to try and beat them at their own game is definitely thematically similar. But I also think the, the gambling personality, the idea of, of risk and, and, and the willingness to sort of do these YOLO trades um, is definitely goes back to sort of these, these themes of like, of like, you know, 10% isn't enough, right? You need to beat the system. You need to find a way to win in a very big way. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, there's a lot of similar themes to it. Um, it's funny that book basically took place in the era you're talking about when Moneymaker won, Vegas becomes hot. And that's right when the MIT Blackjack team was hitting Vegas every weekend. It all kinds of comes together in that 
in that that era, but we're in a whole new era now where Vegas is not sort of central to it. It's Wall Street, and and um, we're seeing you know similar things play out that played out with online poker, online gambling now happening with online Wall Street. Um, mm-hmm. College kids who used to sports bet are now betting on meme stocks or penny stocks um, because Robinhood has handed them a legal app to do the stuff that they were doing illegally, you know, when we were in college or, or a little yeah. bit later than us. Um, and, and that begs the question, should this be entirely unregulated? Should people be able to, if they have a thousand dollars, just bet on random stocks without any real knowledge or education or, or, or oversight? Um, because you really, you know, it's very similar to betting on sports, um, but even more corrupt in a way because you really don't see all of the, all of the angles that are going on. You really don't have information in sports. You have a certain degree of information mm-hmm. um, betting in sports, but on wall street, a lot of it is obscured. Um, you don't really know what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, I think a lot of people who bought GameStop didn't even realize that Robin hood could stop them from buying mm-hmm. um, that Robin could, could close off the app or that, a stock exchange often freezes trading if a stock gets very volatile. I don't think average college kids knew that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that everyone's going in with imperfect information and that, that leads to a very dangerous situation. A lot of people got, got hurt. A lot of people lost a lot of money on this because if you remember GameStop ran from in the 20s to almost $500 a share and then dropped when Robinhood closed it all the way back to 200 where it stayed ever since. Um, so anybody in the vast majority of people bought above 200 um, on that ride upwards. That's when it was hugely volatile and the numbers were insane. So a lot of people bought in at 300, 400, even $500 a share. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they'll get their money back. Maybe it'll, it'll go up again. There's lots of people on the internet saying that the short squeeze hasn't really happened yet, but, uh, but who, who knows? But the, the, the thing is, is that, you know, I'm not saying there should necessarily be regulation that you shouldn't be allowed to do what you do with your money but you need to have your eyes open and you need to understand that um, these things happen, that, that there's a lot of forces aligned on the other side that you may not see. Um, And so, yeah. It's a little, yeah. I, um, I never bought stocks. um, And, you know, so I just wasn't very new to that whenever this all was happening, I was paying attention. And then I found out that they do this like 30 minute thing where like it opens for like the, you know, select few where they get to do like, you know, trades and everything. Cause, uh, what, Oh, it was Airbnb when Airbnb was IPOing. That was whenever I downloaded an app and was like, all right, I'm going to like, cause I thought I was like, this thing's going to go through the roof. Like it's, it's so undervalued and, and such a good, um, company, you know, and obviously it's pre pandemic. And then like all of a sudden 30 minutes go by, I think it IPO'd and then like had basically gained like 40% between nine o'clock and nine 30. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So I I mean, like, it's, it's a different, it's not an, an open system and you're not, you're not running the show. Wall street is. So, I mean, this was an instance with GameStop where for once people could make money because everyone gathered together did force this short squeeze. And so if you were watching carefully, and you were following, you know, Roaring Kitty on YouTube and you bought in, you could make a mint. And a lot of people did, as one of the characters in my book did. But the vast majority of people came to the story on day two of that and dove in during that spiraling upward without realizing that, you know, 
there's a chance this gets deflated and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. 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 And so the one, a couple uh, there's, well, I won't spoil anything, but yeah, I mean, there's people that, that, you know, not ever, it didn't work out great for everybody, right, but exactly. you know, at, yeah. the, at this point, the price uh, today, I looked, I think it's a 200 yeah. um, and Keith Gill, he's not sold, right? No, he's holding a massive amount. I, I, I think he's got $40 million worth of it or something like that. <laughs> and he bought in for $53,000 and made, was up at $45, $50 million. Um, insane. I mean, it's completely insane. But this also goes to this whole YOLO investing style, um, which I totally understand, but it's really intriguing. If you have $1,000 and that's all you have, making 10% on your money is almost meaningless to you. Because oh, yeah. it doesn't change the needle. It doesn't move the needle at all. It doesn't change your life you need to make 10X. So a lot of people bought in for $1,000 and didn't sell at $2,000 because it doesn't change your life. And it's similar in crypto, but the idea of making 50% on your money isn't enough anymore. If you're on Wall Street and you make 10%, it's a great win because you have mm -hmm. plenty of money and you can go back and make 10% again and again and again. But for regular people, you're holding for these massive gains. Um, and that's a very different style of, of investing um, and that also means that the risk is not equitable um, because a Wall Street guy, you know, like Gabe Plotkin gets killed in this stock, but then he goes home to his $30 million apartment and the next day he's got another $2 billion to play with, right? But the regular person who puts his rent money into GameStop isn't gonna sell at two times the price, but if they lose it all, they lose it all. <laughs> they don't yeah. go back the next day. So it's a really interesting story in that respect is that, I understand what powers YOLO investing. I get it. You want to make 10 times your money, but the risk is enormous because you lose what all you have um, and you don't get it back and you can't start again. Um, so um, it's tricky. It's really tricky. Um, it's similar in crypto. I mean, everyone expects now everything to be Bitcoin, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to buy something and the next day make 20% um, because it's, it's not, going to change. Yeah. You're looking for 10 X. You're looking right. for that parabolic well, run. The history of Bitcoin. You think, well, all these people got in at $10 and now it's, you know, $60,000. That's what I want to happen, but that's not going to happen. That's very unusual. Um, and, and in terms of GameStop, people were saying to a thousand, we're going to go to a thousand and it's completely insane to think that. And it did end up going to 500, which was insane, but, mm -hmm. but you know, there was no rationality in that market. Um, it was, it, it was, it was irrational, um, but it worked. And so that's, that's really intriguing. And, and, uh, so yeah, I get into that a little bit the book. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Oh, I'm curious what your thoughts are with, with, uh, you know, Keith kind of being a catalyst for change, you know, like GameStop would have died. Um, and I bet the blockbuster former CEOs of blockbuster sitting there go, where's the person that came, was going to come in and. Yeah, where was yeah. our Keith Gill? GameStop, look at AMC, um, companies that, that figure out how to use this you know, situation. GameStop now is attempting to make this, this big pivot and, and you know, put uh, Ryan Cohen on the board or, or as you know, one of the heads of it. Um, so they actually are taking advantage, finally, of what Keith Gill actually started for them. Um, yeah, I mean, you he is a, an agent of change. You, you, if enough people love something, it's going to be valuable. And I think... GameStop realized that we have this mass amount of people um, who like us, <laughs> right? And if we can access that, then, then we can pivot and become a, a, a central place for gamers, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think he, he changed that company's future. 
But I also think what happened here, we're going to see again and again and again with other companies. I don't think you're going to see hedge funds shorting beloved companies anymore. <laughs> or they're <laughs> going to do it very carefully. Even if the company's fundamentals are awful, they know that they could be targeted. Um, they're not going to be doing open things like this. They're going to do it very quietly. It might change short selling entirely. I mean, I think that there's a lot of funds getting out of that business because they realize the risk can be too high in a very volatile, irrational market. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what other changes there will be, but I'm pretty sure there will be lots of lasting changes that come out of this. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Like GameStop was dying and then, you know, now uh, they've all of a sudden, you know, like you said, AMC, like people love movie theaters. There's nostalgia, you know, there's, there's something that people love about those things. We don't want to see movie theaters go away. And, and so I think shorting a, a movie theater company is a dangerous maneuver right now. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, I gotta then, you know, ask you about GameStop, the store and, you know, your experiences with it. Um, you know, I don't have the direct quote and I apologize for not having it written down, but, uh, I loved your description of the store. You said something like it would be like a yard sale mixed with a, uh, electronic store, you know, like yeah, when you yeah. walk I mean, in, crazy. if you walk into GameStop, it's, it's completely haphazard. Like, Every shelf has nothing to do with the next shelf. And you'll have like cute little stuffed animals next to a chainsaw dripping, dripping blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? But my kids love it. I mean, my kids are gay, love Fortnite and Roblox and all that stuff. So they can spend hours in, in GameStop. And I love it. You get to the counter and like it's the slowest checkout because the people working there just want to talk to everyone for 20 minutes about obscure video games uh, but that's part of the fun, too, I think, is everyone in there is kind of like-minded and loves this sort of garbage. <laughs> it's, a, it's fun. I, I like GameStop, but it's definitely, not, it, it's definitely not a company that has pivoted. Like, it doesn't feel like, you know, you're shopping anywhere else. It's, it has its own character to it. Um, but, yeah, it's like a yard sale or a garage sale that's just everything's hanging off the shelves. There's no order to it at all. Um, and, and there's both used games and new games and... And then weird consoles that you've never heard of before. And then, you know, it's just, it's great. I, I, I love it. But um, will it exist in the future? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if they, they manage to, to pull it off. Well, as a Power Up Rewards member, I, uh, I hope that they do. Um, and, uh, and it's funny that this, I, I was out of, I mean, I love playing video games, grew up playing them. And then probably, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, something like that, seven years ago, I just kind of stopped playing, you know, was busy with so many other things that I didn't have the time to. And then yeah. all of a sudden when the pandemic hit, um, yeah, I just was like, went on GameStop, boom, bought, you know, PS4, yeah. Call of Duty, and and I was right back in. And Yeah. I mean, the pandemic was a big part of this story. So when you read the book, you'll see it's central to this. I don't think this could have happened in any other moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were all stuck at home for, for months, uh, sitting on your couches, but people had sudden cash because the government was giving people cash and you know you could have used it for rent or or whatever but as a gambler you know found money is never used for things like that oh <laughs> no <laughs> you you gamble it you bet it because you want to turn it into something or you buy something stupid and all of that applies to GameStop right so I mean I, I think that this was part of it. It, it I don't think it could have been a, a different moment so um really I, I don't know very cool you know, part of the story is, is how people are reacting to the pandemic um, by taking on Wall Street. Um, it, it, it couldn't have happened at a different time. 
and you talk a little bit about it too, but um, in the book, but you know, I think maybe the socialization aspect of Wall Street bets and in the Reddit community is that something that basically kind of was filling a void for people, you think, during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a real sense of community. There's an interesting point in the book where the character, one of the characters, knows he should sell his stock. I mean, he wants to sell it, but there's such peer pressure because he's part of this Reddit community that really looks down on people who were selling because you were supposed to stay diamond handed. It only works if we all stay together. If people start selling, the stock will go down and the short squeeze will be over. And so even though he's made a quarter million dollars on a few thousand dollars, he feels bad about selling and he has to be reminded by his brother and stuff that, what are you doing? You did this to make money. You just made an enormous amount of money. You don't even know these people, right? <laughs> these are random anonymous people on a Reddit board and you feel bad for them because you're selling your stock, right? But it's really real. The community becomes very real to people. And you know, all of us get on social media or on Twitter or whatever, and you start to get into that. And you, even though they're just faceless avatars most of the time, it becomes very real to you. So yeah, yeah that's a community, especially during the pandemic when we were all so isolated, um, becomes a big central thesis, you know, is, is that, these communities are very real, um, even though if it's over Zoom or if it's over Reddit or over whatever, um, Discord, um, you know, that's where we live now, um, yeah. especially at this time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with, uh, I don't know if you've hopped into any like Twitter spaces or anything, and it's kind of like that clubhouse, but, but yeah. there's a group of like, you know, probably 10 people that I'm like, you know, maybe once every three nights popping in and out of like some uh, Twitter spaces with. And I think 80% of them are like, you know, just, I know their picture. <laughs> like I know the, I, I, it's not their human picture. It's, you know, whatever, whatever random picture they have. So it's like, I know log scale. I know, uh, you know, the couple other people. And it's like, I have no idea. I can walk pa- down the street, walk past them. I have no idea. And I've been talking to them every couple nights for, you know, like two months now. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, it's, that's where we live. Uh, I think that's where we all live now is, is on these, you know, and that's, it all started with Zuckerberg and the little village that Facebook was supposed to be. And now it's just become this beast. And I call it the antisocial network because, you know, it started off as something much happier, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so many more dark elements to it. Um, they're good to it too. Um, but, you know, looking at Wall Street Bets itself, I mean, there's so much dirt language and, you know, people going out of each other and negativity and things like that. Um, and, and you do see good things come out of it. But overall, I think as a society, um, we're definitely more antisocial than social. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do want to ask you a couple of questions about, you know, what it's like to get into writing to, to help any, you know, um, writers out there or anybody in the arts. But um, I do a couple of questions that we got whenever I tweeted out the the contest to get the book um, was that uh, there's the Bitcoin beach. Are you familiar with them? Um, which one? Down in El Salvador. Uh, no, not really. I don't know. That'll be, they, they'd commented. I interviewed him before the guy that, that uh, is coordinating all that, but they are a circular economy in El Salvador and it's solving so many problems for them because they live off of remittances and everything like that. Um, so he he threw a soft pitch out there and said, if he ever wants to write the book about, you know, the first circular Bitcoin economy, um, you know, we could we could make it happen. So uh, so that'll 
that'll be. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but it does sound fascinating. I'm sure it's a. I'm sure it's a good story. So. I'll yeah, <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to pitch it to you and then see if it uh, if it if it grabs your attention, because I'm sure you get pitched tons of stories all the time. <laughs> I, do, I do. It's tricky. You know, for me now, writing a story, it's got to be huge. It's got to be international. It's got to be new. Um, and it has to have a concept that I think is going to be like the next big thing. So I'm always looking for like Jurassic Park. You know, I'm always looking for something that is instantly in one sentence. Everyone gets it and sees the movie in their head. So it's tricky when you, when you, uh, you know, Bitcoin, I feel like I've written the Bitcoin book. Um, it would have to be a real, real departure from what that story was. So, yeah. And I, I have one that I'll, I'll probably have to tell you afterwards. And I might even probably have to have you sign an NDA, uh, the one that I could pitch you, um, that, uh, is completely anonymous, but man, it, it would, I think would be something it's not Bitcoin related at all. <laughs> um, and, uh, the other one, uh, Somebody asked, what book are you the most proud of? Oh, that's a hard question. You know, which I, child I, do you love the most? I love all of your books. I, I will say, um, I do think the Antisocial Network is my best writing. And I'm not just saying it because it's out now, but I think if you read it, you'll see it's some of the best stuff I've done. Um, I love my book, Wooly, which is kind of in the news right now. Uh, the, I, the scientist who's making a woolly mammoth in his lab, George yeah. Church. So I wrote a book about that a few years ago, which, which basically was the story that's in the news now um really wonderful writing experience but the book you know it, it wasn't a big seller or anything um i wrote a, a a book called ugly americans that people outside the finance world didn't really read about expats living in in tokyo really fun book to write um bringing down the house was the big book that kind of changed my life and was probably the most fun to write because it was in vegas every weekend with the mit blackjack team and then <laughs> can't uh, be that there's the social network was such a you know, a huge phenomenon and going to the Oscars and being a part of that. It's just, you know, you can't even explain how insane that year was. So um, yeah, they're all different. I mean, there's been a lot of, I've been very fortunate that I've had some amazing experiences with these books. Um, Once Upon a Time in Russia, probably the most terrifying thing I've ever did, hang out with all these Russian oligarchs to, to write the story of Abramovich and Berezovsky and Putin. And, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever do that again that experience but it was in, intense that's for sure so yeah yeah i don't know if i'd want to get tangled up in the geopolitical yeah oh, man. Of... I scary i was hanging out with some really scary dudes <laughs> so, yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of stories there um so yeah I, 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 i've written a lot of books at this point so it's 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 definitely hard to choose yeah. Well, if you're ever going to go back to the Russian oligarchs, then I would take Bert Kreischer with you. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his stand-up routine, but he he uh, he has a whole bit, his famous bit about him getting involved with the Russian mafia <laughs> when he was in college. He's actually the he's the guy that um, that they wrote the article that became the movie Van Wilder. Oh. Um, so like he was at Florida, he was at Florida State, I think, and he was there for like seven years. And uh, who was it that was it National Lampoons or maybe somebody, one of the magazines sent somebody it was, there. It was National Lampoon made the movie. Okay. Um, yeah. I forget. Somebody went to do a profile of Florida State because they were like the number one party school at the time. And then so they said, you should have this guy take you around because he knows everything and then they ended up writing it about him and it turned into that movie and so he's got this great story so yeah if you ever going to go back to russia take him he'll he'll uh, guide you through he knows them all <laughs> but uh so uh, before we go here i wanted to you know 
just kind of there's a lot of people out there, especially in these emerging economies that and, you know, the Bitcoin world and everything that, you know, a lot of startups, people where they're trying their first thing, whether it's podcasting, writing, getting into movies, art, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what the get your feedback a little bit on what it was like to get into writing because people look at, you know, Ben Mesrick now that, you know, every big story that happens, it's going to be him that makes it. And, you know, he's going to write it. And, and this must've just, this is his life. This is how it always was, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so tell people, what was it like before that? Well, you know, I wanted to be a writer since I was 12. So I've started at a very young age. Um, and, um, I graduated from college and I locked myself up and I wrote 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 nine novels in the first year that I graduated. And I couldn't wow. sell any of them. It was rejection, rejection, rejection. And I had the walls covered in rejection slips. <laughs> I had 190 rejections before I sold my first book. Um, I sold my first book when I was like 24. Um, and so I became a professional author very young, but nobody read my first few books. I was writing thrillers, you know, medical thrillers, um, I wrote for the X-Files. I ended up doing a book for the X-Files, if you remember that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I had a TV movie, I think, in, when I was like 29 or something called Fatal Error, which starred Antonio Sabato Jr. and Robert Wagner. It was really cheesy. Um, and then I met the MIT kids, started going to Vegas with them. So it took me a long, a lot of work to sort of get to my overnight success. Um, and then that book just exploded and became a huge book. And so I became a nonfiction writer. Um, with that book because it, it was my first successful book. So suddenly that's what publishers wanted for. So I never set out to be a journalist and to tell sort of these big newsy stories. Um, I loved writing thrillers. I loved Hollywood. I, I just always wanted to write books that were turned into movies. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a process for everyone trying to figure out what it is that they can write, you know, better than anyone else, I guess, um, what their voice is. And for me, it took, a lot of sort of writing and writing and writing on my own before I broke in. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, people always assume it's an overnight success, right. you know, but they don't see, you know, there is tons of rejection and it's you just got to get numb to it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was getting rejected. I've been rejected by everyone I've worked with since <laughs> I am rejected. <laughs> just about. I mean, I had 190 rejection slips and I literally would tape them to the walls of my apartment. Um, so I, I looked like a serial killer. I was in a room. Full of, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it was tough. I mean, but the thing is, is that you also have to get lucky. So it's not just hard work. I mean, eventually, you know, hard work makes you better at something, but there's plenty of really good writers who never make it also. Um, so I, I truly believe it's a mixture of the two things. But if you want to be a writer, you have to really, really be determined to the point that you know, of almost insanity, because everyone around you is going to tell you you can't do it. Um, my parents were like, you know, you, you got to get a job, you know, you're not be <laughs> doing this. Um, and, uh, and they were right. Um, but I got lucky because I didn't want to get a job. This is all I wanted to do. Um, so I, I do think you have to look at it that way. There's so many walls to getting into the artistic fields. Um, it's just, uh, it's just a matter of sort of, you know, obsession and the determination that this is all I'm going to do. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then you got to get lucky. Then, then there has to be a luck part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you, your style, um, because a lot of people, you know, if they haven't read your, your work before, you know, they would assume it's about a true story. So it's going to be, you know, like going. Yeah. I mean, I write it like a movie. My goal is to sort of write in a cinematic way, a thriller that just happens to be true. 
And to be fair, there's a lot of critics who don't like the way I write. Um, you know, there's a big New York Times review of the Antisocial Network coming out. And it's basically like, what the heck is he doing here? <laughs> like, that's the review. It's almost like, I don't know what he's doing because I don't write like regular journalists do. Uh, Michael Lewis would approach this story very differently than me, mm -hmm. Walter Isaacson. I interview everyone. I get all the information. I get the legal documents. I know the real story, but then I write it like a thriller so that when you're reading it, it's like watching the movie. And that's why I've had such a good relationship with Hollywood and why I keep getting projects made. Um, it's because I really see, I think nonfiction can be a lot more fun than just the sort of dry telling of the facts. Um, because mm -hmm. the reality of it was much more vibrant than that. You know, what happened in this room is not just the facts of the room. It's, it's, it's the feel of the room and the, how it looks and how people acted. And so that's the story I want to tell. So when I sit down to write a true story, I'm thinking of it as a movie. I'm seeing the movie in my head and I try and put the movie onto the page. Um, so it's not for everyone. And I'm very open about, you know, my process. And it's, you know, it's, it's not, don't go in expecting it to be, um, you know, a newspaper article because that's not how I write my books. No, and I love it. I mean, you know, uh, at the, the sake of sounding like I'm just giving you too much praise, you know, while you have oh, you on, I, you know, as a filmmaker, it, it's, it's great to read a true story and have it not be told to you like a reporter. And, and, right. you know, basically the best way I could describe it is you're, you know, you're, you're color, you're adding color pictures to the, to the blank, you know, black and white page. And um, even though there's no pictures in the book. Right. <laughs> so. I mean, listen, like I, I look at the Elon Musk chapter. I don't know if you got the Elon Musk. Oh chapter. yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you want to capture Elon Musk in a book. There's plenty of ways to do it. And we've all kind of read about this and that. But I have him running around underground with a flamethrower fighting AI because that's Elon Musk. And I well, that's think who he is. after the true story of Elon Musk, you have to go a little bit farther. So, I mean, I really do look at it that way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, well, not every reviewer agrees with my process, but I do think it's, uh, it's the fun way to write. I wanted to be Michael Crichton, you know, I wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson. So I tried to mix the two of them uh, into a nonfiction writer. And this is what you get. Um, but yeah, that's that's the way I've always approached the stories. Oh, well, then, you know, you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier and you bring up Michael Crichton and yeah. um, and that, you know, my son had a Jurassic Park birthday party this summer. That was that was his yeah, theme. I Jurassic Park, one of the best books ever written. And, and the movie obviously was phenomenal, but it's just the, the stylistically, but also the realness of it. And the, the oh, yeah. that's in there. I mean, it's it's just awesome. And and his style was couldn't stop turning the pages. And so that's what I've always kind of based what I want to do on. So, um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And that's I'll say this just as a, you know, an endorsement, because I'm I'm not a reader. And I uh, so if anyone that listens to my, any of my listeners, if I interview somebody, an author, it's because I read the book and I really liked it. <laughs> and um but yeah I, I qualify that with saying that i'm not a reader it, it's just i'm like i'm usually a little bit of a slower reader and if it doesn't hold my attention i just can't get there with it um and and i'm a visual person i'm a movie maker so like that's where i like to live um but uh but yeah that's you know you the original jurassic park um i think the movie had just come out and i was pretty young you know so i didn't see it in theaters and then we were at some kind of event that was being held at a school that my parents were attending and, and all of us kids were hanging out in the library. And, you know, for me not being a book person, you know, I had gone through all the books with 
colored pages and my brother goes you're going to want to look at this and it had jurassic park and i thought oh man and i remember we um we're both sitting there reading it like whoa this is so cool and then you know the obviously the movie comes out so yeah so i say jeff booth is you know he wrote a book it's he's a bitcoiner but he wrote a book called the price of tomorrow he's the only other author i've done and those are the two books that i've read in the last as far as new books um so i couldn't endorse it more and uh you know it Get, to give people a send off where they can uh, where they can find your book and and where they can find you on on Twitter and online. Yeah. So yeah, the Antisocial Network should be in every bookstore right now. Um, it's on Amazon. Um, you can find me at Twitter at Ben Mesrick or at Instagram. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm often on Twitter. I think that's pretty much where I usually post things. And um, yeah, you can always email my website benmesrick.com. Uh, people pitch me stories all the time, but. And I'm, I'm always looking for something really, really big. So uh, usually it's it's uh, it's tricky for me to just do a good story. But anyways, um, yeah, uh, I hope people enjoy the book. It's out everywhere now and hopefully look for the movie in about a year. Awesome. Awesome. Ben, well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.